Hello and welcome to the Landing Theatre New Works podcast, where in each episode we learn about a new play with the help of the world's leading expert in that play, the person who wrote it. I'm Brendan Borkshiel, playwright-in-residence for The Landing, and today I'm talking to David Davila about his play Aztec Pirates, a Latinx Fantasia on National Themes Part 1, The Insignificance of Life on Mars, which of course was an official selection for The Landing's 2021 New American Voices Playwriting Festival. Yes, you heard that title right, it did include the words Part 1. This is the first installment of a trilogy. You don't see many of those on stage, but one thing that's very obvious in talking to David is that he's not afraid to be ambitious and to branch out every which way creatively. In addition to writing plays, he's written musicals, He's written for film and TV. He's written poetry and sketch comedy. He's done stand-up and podcasting. He's trained at Second City and the Primary Stages ESPA Playwriting School. He's the founding artistic director of Lone Star Theatre Company. In researching him, I quickly got the sense that he's creatively insatiable. And getting to talk to him most definitely confirmed that. In this interview, we talk a bit about his early life and how he became a writer in the first place. We talk about his play's development over the course of years and the fascinating, ambitious, daunting task of writing a trilogy. Heads up, we fully spoil this play. And not only that, but we talk pretty extensively about what happens in part two as well. We even get into some of the broad strokes of what happens in the not yet written at the time of this interview, part three. So be warned, spoilers abound. If you missed the landings reading and you'd like to check out the scripts we're talking about, parts one and two of the Aztec Pirates trilogy are currently available for download on newplayexchange.org. But enough from me, let's hear from David. Oh, first of all, let me just compliment the first line of your bio because I saw a couple, yes, I saw a couple different versions in my research. I think it's so hard to write a bio that explains who you are and contains something about your essence and also grabs people. And within the first sentence, I saw different variations on the bio in different places. But like <laughs> The two that I remember the most are the one I'm looking at right now. David Davila is a writer, performer, director, comedian, and dramaturg from South Texas, where the border wall's been standing since the Bush administration. And then I saw another one that was like effectively the same thing, except... It was instead of where the border wall's been standing since the Bush administration, it was where 45 wants to build his stupid wall. Yeah, that's what it was. And then, uh, um, you know, he's not president anymore and they did start building the wall. And and also the wall has actually already been in that part where I grew up since Mm. Bush, since 9-11. He started putting up that wall and I'll never forget seeing it for the first time crossing the border because we growing up we always crossed the border back and forth just on weekends or sometimes just to go to a restaurant we wanted to eat at or like to buy medicine that without a prescription sure like, there's lots of reasons to just walk over and, and uh you would park on one side and just walk across the river and shop and um eat dinner and it was a lot of fun and i it was like 2000 and three or 2004 and I hadn't walked across in a year or two and I came home to visit my parents and we walked across and there was the wall like along the river and it was like I have pictures from back then pre-digital camera era and um yeah I'll never forget that seeing it for the first time but um yeah I know I'm like the millionth person to make this observation but it's so weird that that's a reaction to 9-11 like some people from the Middle East flew into some planes in New York City. So what we need to do is go down to South Texas. 
<laughs> well, I always think of that scene from The Wire. And have you seen The Wire? A, a bit, yeah. Okay, so like I always think of it's like the first episode of season two, and between season one and two, and the the towers fell, mm-hmm. and it's like one of the first things they're changing the office of I can't even remember what it was called before. That's how long it's been, but they're changing the name of the office to uh, Office of Homeland and Security or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just remembered that it was just such a stark difference that happened. Then what was it called before? Op- naturalization and something. Something. Oh, was it the INS that that changed into Homeland Security? I, don't quote me on this. I, I need to do research because there's. <laughs> Let me look up. I'm gonna get canceled. Let me see. But yeah, it was some major rebranding. Yeah, on on March 12, 2002, it was changed to Homeland Security. I'm on their wiki page. What was it called before that? I, it's not on the wiki page. Isn't that silly? Hmm. That they wouldn't list that on the wiki page. Yeah, I guess I thought at the time that it was like Homeland Security was a whole new invention. But of course, it was like a rebranding of things that existed. Yeah. And I don't know why I can't. um, Can't find it. But yeah, it was it was um, anyway. Yeah, but it was like that's that really threw me. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. no. (laughs) But okay, so there is this sudden, stark transformation to the place where you live post 9-11. I mean, and at the same time that was going on actually was the drug war was happening. And mm-hmm. that was like all over the news every day too. I'm sure you remember that. So I think it was, it was that was part of it as well, trying to keep us safe from the drug war, quote unquote, um, which was all over the news that was scaring people. And actually since then, it, it hasn't been the same. We used to just be able to go across anytime we wanted, mm-hmm. night or day, and it, it wasn't a big deal. And now it's a big deal. You need your passport and there's all sorts of travel advisories and um, it's just different. And then of course now with COVID, I haven't tried to cross. So maybe I should, maybe I should go. I was actually, <laughs> I was contemplating going recently for a reason you mentioned, like I have a friend who needed medicine that was really expensive here. And I realized I couldn't at least for that reason at this time, like driving across for medical tourism is something that at least at the time that I was looking at it, they were people weren't doing except by flying. Ah, I wonder what's going. I wonder what's uh, how it's going. I'll, I'll find out. You know what? I'm going to find out and, and I'll get back to you. And we and then you know you can go on a little trip to get medicine. I'll go with you. We'll get a margarita. It'll be fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I mean that's such a big part of our medical economy. It's like built into American medicine is the assumption that a lot a lot of people are going to cross the border to get their medicine. Is it? Do you really think so? I mean, it's not so easy when you live up north. I've lived in in New York for 10 years and it's not something people do there. I mean, you mm-hmm. don't leave the country to get medicine there. Uh, of course, when I lived in on the South Texas, we did, but they don't go to Canada up there. Well, Canada from New York, they might like in Buffalo, but as far as New York, I mean, Canada is like a 10 hour, 12 hour drive, mm-hmm. depending where you are. So it's yeah. not exactly like easy you factor in the cost of gas it's almost as much as if you just bought it here that's true yeah yeah exactly you could just buy it i guess what we're saying (laughs) (laughs) for any listeners who are interested in buying drugs weighing their options uh, vis-a-vis border crossing these are things to think about but okay so you're in south texas you get into theater the normal way through high school through like the school audition to theater major pipeline 
<laughs> uh, basically, I mean, you know, I was a kid that always needed attention and because uh, I didn't get enough of it. I was a middle, I had middle child syndrome, so I needed every attention and uh, validation too. So I got validation when I like sang or acted. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I did choir and theater and all that stuff growing up. My dad took me to see a high school production of uh, Agatha Christie play when I was in fifth grade and I was like oh my god I want to do theater Mm. (laughs) became like obsessed uh and then in high school my choir director gave me a copy of Miss Saigon and I like completely memorized the whole thing I can still pretty much sing Miss Saigon from beginning to end and then of course I got into all the other ones and yeah went to school I went to school for opera actually originally at North Texas and um then I did pretty amazing music program there right UNT Yes, which is why I went there, but I did it just because, again, because of valid, because of my, this like inner craving for validation and like respect. I was like, I have to go to the best music school. And so I literally just went to North Texas because of its reputation without even doing any actual research or inner questioning of what I actually wanted to do with my life. So I went there and did opera and was miserable. And uh, also was like in the closet, which I think added to it. Mm. And this was, this was years ago. I mean, we're talking, I graduated high school in 2000. So this was, you know, years ago and uh, yeah, I was miserable. So then I, I transferred to, I actually dropped out of school and was like, I'm moving to New York. <laughs> and I'm gonna, <laughs> and um, I didn't move to New York that year, but I did spend a year just, traveling around and um, accepting that I was gay to myself without coming out. And uh, then I went to UTSA and finished school there doing arts administration. Hmm. And I taught high school for a few years, high school choir. And then I still wasn't satisfied. And, and it's been a really long process for me to figure out what I want to do with my life, which is weird, but it's it's just been, it's been a long process for, for other reasons that... Um, Probably haven't, we shouldn't talk about on this podcast, but uh, I got there eventually and uh, I've been in New York for 10 years, started a small theater company there. Um, It's called Lone Star Theater and we're a development company. So we mostly uh, find people that are Texas playwrights or composers and just like give them a hand, do their first reading. I'm a dramaturg and director and uh, some of my other dramaturg and director friends. We do readings, we develop uh, we do concerts for young composers. That's what we've been doing. Yeah, and right before quarantine, we did our first production. After ten years of just readings and concerts, we did a a production, and then and then quarantine happened. <laughs> of course, it happened. <laughs> so that's that's that was my way into theater. Of course, I when I was in uh, Texas teaching, when I was teaching choir, mm-hmm. I did years and years of of theater. Uh, f- like five years, like at the San Antonio Public Theater and those, those oh, theaters sure, yeah. around San Antonio, yeah. Well, what was the way into writing for you? Was it a, a very natural, uh, you know, kind of next step? Yes, but it goes all the way back to like childhood. Um, I would write poetry and songs and, you know, I was one of those annoying kids with like their poems published in those children's volumes that they try to get your parents to buy and my parents weren't didn't have money to buy them so they would get published and I would never I don't have any copies of any of those books but I would do that and um I mean I was always like a really creative writer that was another thing I got validation from doing so I don't know I, I one day one of my professors Dr. Garza at North Texas uh who was a theater professor little Twinkie gay man, um, just a joy, uh, 
a joy. And <laughs> he put a copy of a play Marisol in my hand. Yeah. Do you know Marisol? Jose Rivera. Jose Rivera, yeah. And, it, and also a copy of Roosters by Milcha Sanchez Scott. And that, I don't know, it just like changed my life. I hadn't considered stories from like where I grew up, because I don't know if you've ever been to South Texas, like from Houston, but it's like 85, 90% like Mexican-American. Everyone here is Mexican-American. The doctors, the lawyers, the everybody. And uh, I just never saw that on TV unless it was in Spanish on the Spanish channel, but not in English. And I didn't really speak Spanish as a kid. So I don't know. It was just like this revelation for me. And I I sat down one day, one day my, my car broke down on the highway and I like walked to a Burger King and I had like a spiral book and I started writing a play. And then I was like, I'm a writer. But of course I was terrible. I was a terrible writer and a uh, terrible playwright. It takes years to get good at anything, you know, but um, it was a long process. And, and then I got delayed my twenties. I, I, my twenties, I sort of, I don't want to say wasted, because I got a degree and I did years of theater and I taught choir and I fell in love a couple of times, but uh, I wasn't writing. I'll just say that. <laughs> you, uh, you took the scenic route. You were, you I were... took the scenic route. I lived a life. I got a lot of experience though, um, directing, performing show after show. I've like, you know, a lot of experience from that, which comes in handy, which yes. comes in handy. <laughs> it absolutely, it feeds the writing, right? And, and your, your work with Lone Star, also feeds it the the development of other people's plays kind of feeds your own development yeah and actually i just want to say that any sort of career bump i've had has come from people i've met and such from producing other people's work like producing my own work and producing other people's work creates just creating more opportunities for everybody always comes back to me and gives me more opportunities in the end which is not like the reason that i did it in the beginning but it was just it's just been an interesting thing to learn that you should constantly be helping others and producing others and lifting up other people because in the end you you do get lifted up as well. Yeah, I love that you said that because I think whether we admit it or not, it's very easy for us to fall under the the misapprehension that there's a scarcity and the best thing we could do is advance our own careers uh, before other people can get there. But I, I really do think the kind of rising tide lifts all boats mentality is, in my experience, more true to how it works. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you are acting and developing and singing and writing and somewhere in there, uh, the idea for Aztec Pirates occurs. And I have a feeling this one could have been in the works for a long time in one way or another. So this may be a long answer I'm setting you up okay. for, but sure. like, what sparked the idea for Aztec Pirates? Sure. Well, um, the border crisis, of course, for sure. This is a play about about the border crisis, um, but also about identity within the Latinx community. And yes, it was probably the ideas and 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 thesis and such have been developing slowly in me for a long time. I specifically. Um, it is a it is a long process. <laughs> do you want me? Do you want to hear the whole thing? Yeah, let's hear the whole thing. <laughs> so, okay. Well, okay. Where does it start? It starts with me having an idea for uh, an ICE agent or questioning my own identity and my complicity, and having this idea of a character who's an ICE agent and questioning his identity and um, 
I wrote a small scene, like an eight page scene. That's like a dinner party uh, of two couples and the guys are ICE agents and they're just having an argument about what they call themselves. Are they Latinos? Are they Hispanics? Are they Mexican American, et cetera. And it was just a small little scene I wrote probably in like 2013, 2014. And I put it off. I never did anything with it. And, um, a few years go by and I can't get this character who's the lead character of this play, uh, Johnny, Johnny Montenegro. I can't get him out of my head. And, uh, I, I just kept thinking about him and thinking about him. And then Lone Star Theater, my theater company, we produce a one act festival every year. And, uh, it was time for the one act festival. And, and that year we had chosen to, uh, we had chosen Crossing Borders as our theme and, and we had chosen all Tejano playwrights who were going to write on the theme of Crossing Borders. And uh, it was cool. And uh, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to explore this uh, character, Johnny, a little more because I kept thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about him, especially what was with what was going on on TV. And so, yeah, I wrote a 10 minute play for this festival. And when you're writing a 10 minute play, at least in New York for these festivals, you're, you're always trying to like... <laughs> Oh, shock and ooh and ah, like in a quick 10 minutes and you want your play to be remembered and you want to have like an impact. Like, what can you really do with 10 minutes? Yeah. Um, you know, so I decided to write, I wanted to write about him being called a traitor by a man, a, a traitor to his race uh, and being accused of genocide, um, because which was just something that I was thinking about a lot in dealing with, I had done my own DNA test, finding out that, you know, and which you already know, right? But you don't really think about at least when you're um, Mexican-American or whatever, that you are both DNA of like indigenous people and also the people that conquered them. And you wouldn't exist if, if, they, if they hadn't been conquered and all that stuff. So um, yeah, I, I, just, I just thought an ICE agent, a Latino ICE agent getting accused of genocide and what would he do about it? And he has a sort of like mental break and um, beats the guy up. And that was, um, that was the play. And then he like, it was like poetic and, and he has a vision of a, of a girl or he sees a girl, he finds a girl in a closet, which is like an immigrant girl hiding. And he in his head thinks that it's the Virgin Mary or something. And it's just an, an immigrant girl. And uh, that was the 10 minute play. And uh, everyone loved it. And everyone came up to me after at the bar and said, that's not a 10 minute play. That's a full length play. You have to finish that play. <laughs> so uh, yeah. So then I went on like a, a year long process of trying to finish the play. And, and, and I had to decide like, is that, was that moment where he beats that guy up? Is that the climax of the play? Is this going to be leading to this moment? Is everything going to be leading to that moment? Or is this a moment or is that, do I leave that as the beginning of the play and then say, well, what the hell happens to this guy afterwards? What are the consequences of what he does? And how does he cope with this? And how does he live with himself? And I, I went with the latter, which is what the play is that's in this festival. Um, so it's a study on, on that. And uh, I had, I had really, really good people around me in New York who, who encouraged me to write this play, who kept encouraging, who kept checking in feast performance series, uh, Broadview's on Broadway Festival, the Playground Experiment, Mike Lesser uh, and the Playground Experiment, which I work with a lot in New York. He was constantly on me asking me for pages, asking me for pages, asking me for pages. And uh, he produced uh, the first reading of it. And um, yeah, and, and from there it got more and more readings and San Diego. And, and here's the thing, after that very first reading of the Playground Experiment, everyone came up to me also afterwards and loved the play. And they all said, this isn't a play, this is a trilogy. 
<laughs> so it just like kept going on and on and on. And, and I, I said, no, 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 don't be ridiculous. Don't be ridiculous. Yeah. And, but I kept seeing these characters and I kept thinking about these characters. And, and so then sure enough, I, um, yeah, I, I started work, I continuing to work on it. <laughs> Wait, so that was completely other people's suggestion to begin with. You hadn't at all been privately harboring this feeling maybe that you, you were scared to admit to yourself that like this could have the legs to be multiple plays rather than just one. No, I was not. That was fully like unanimous from everyone who would see it telling me that the world was bigger, that they, that there was more to investigate, that there was more to write. There were more care, like that had to keep writing it. And it wasn't. And the thing is, if it, maybe if it had just been one person, I would have brushed it off, but it just, every time there was a reading, people kept coming up to me and telling me the same thing, which was that it was more that there needed to be a sequel or a trilogy uh, over and over, which, uh, eventually, and then I started dreaming of these characters. I just kept having the same dream of a character doing something. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. want to say, but I kept having this dream and this character doing that same thing over and over again. And so, yeah, I decided, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. And I decided I was gonna do it. I was in San Diego. This play was in the San Diego Latinx Play Festival last year. Last year, like 2019, and um, people were telling me the same thing there. And at the same time, I had I had gotten the Brooklyn Cultural Arts Center. I had a reading coming up at the Brooklyn Cultural Arts Center in like a, a month after that reading. So I was like, okay, I'm going to take everything I learned. I'm going to do rewrites and then present it again and do more rewrites. And the guy who runs that, um, that program at the Brooklyn Cultural Arts Center said the same thing. Like he wanted more. And he's actually the one then... Um, and I said, well, I, I've had, I guess I've, I've been thinking of this, like maybe it could be more. And he's like, it's more, there's more, there's more. <laughs> so shout out to, to him. And that's the Frank Silvera uh, reading series at the Brooklyn Cultural Arts Center. So um, he kept telling me there was more. So then we had our, re- I had a reading at the Brooklyn Cultural Arts Center and we were discussing it and he bas- he commissioned me to do the second one. And so he was like, this is your deadline. It's gotta be done. By this date and we'll do a reading so then um i knew that i had eight months to to write part two and i was just thinking about it a lot and thinking about it and bringing pages again to the playground experiment and working through it and um and what happened a quarantine happened and i and uh i already knew i only had like two months left to finish writing this but it was kind of lucky the quarantine happened it wasn't lucky that i got covid and i was like in bed for a month sorry but wow. <laughs> at the very beginning in march of 2020 uh but when april came around and i started feeling better i just dove in and wrote all of part two in like a month in time for this reading at the Brooklyn cultural Arts center which then was postponed but <laughs> but uh but it did get a reading at the playground experiment uh, and then it did get a reading after that at uh, the Latinx Playwright Circle. And then it got another reading after that with a private producer who paid for that. So, um, so yeah, part, uh, part two is exciting, too. It's all very exciting. I have so many questions. Yeah, go for it. Sorry. <laughs> talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. <laughs> no, it's just, it's really exciting. And it, it subtly kind of blows up my idea of what a playwright does, because I feel like we are always writing with the assumption that we have to write standalone stories. And so that shapes the kind of stories we tell. Once you were conceiving of this as a trilogy, did that reshape this first part that we're reading at the NAV Festival? Not at first. 
Not at first. Eventually, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, not until, oops, let me turn this off, sorry. No problem. So not at first, uh, but eventually, yes. Uh, not until we read both parts back to back, which um, happened when I had a third draft of part two this past October, and we read part one. We spent a whole day. I was very lucky. I have a, a friend who does, is not a big Broadway producer or anything, uh, so can't, but does is a, a small independent producer of small things and paid all these actors. Um, I was very grateful, uh, paid them wages so that we could do work and table work and a reading of part one and part two in one day. Uh, <laughs> so I was very lucky because that was the first time hearing them back to back and seeing like mm-hmm. how they play off of each other and what changes when you're seeing them, when you're seeing both of them. And it was very informative. And that is when I went back to part one and made a few changes. Nothing too much, just like just little things that little edits that needed to be made and things like that. But um, nothing too big. Part one pretty much stands on its own. So I'm actually pretty shocked that everyone who sees part one thought that there needed to be a part two or a trilogy considering that part one pretty much stands on its own. Maybe the ending leaves you wanting to know a little bit more about what's going to, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for your listeners. Um, Maybe the ending leaves you wanting to know a little bit more, uh, or maybe they, you want to know something final and it doesn't necessarily provide that. But I actually think that if you're paying attention, it, it does provide that. What happens at the end is I mean, it, it's a final, it's very final to me uh, and condemning of how complicit people can be. And um, yeah, but something does happen to that person and maybe they, they did want to know what was going to happen to the, that person. And that happens between part one and two. And we jump forward in part three and you don't actually find out what that thing is until flashbacks before the end of act one and it's kind of shocking and then um you know a lot of the stories told kind of with flashbacks and in and out and it's a fantasia so it doesn't it 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 jumps back and forth and there's ghosts and ancestors and visions and uh all kinds of uh fun fantasia e things <laughs> yes well speaking of I feel like when you give yourself the room of writing a trilogy, you open the door to a lot of that kind of stuff that your editor brain might have cut off before it ever started in a a shorter work or in a single self-contained work. And I'm just curious, as someone who is writing something, knowing that it is part of a trilogy, has that given you some space? Has that given you a, a different feel as a writer than in previous scripts where they've just been a single script? Has this uh, kind of changed your process at all? Definitely. And the thing that really changed it was, um, which was just at the end of 2020 or after that reading where we heard it back to back, I decided to change the title to have Fantasia in it. So now it's it's called Aztec Pirates, a Latinx Fantasia on mm-hmm. national themes. And that wasn't the title before. So having that Fantasia in the title, I think allowed me to look at it and shape it a little differently and um, to kind of make broader strokes, um, give myself room to be a little bit more mystical, do a little, that something happens in, in, in act two of part two that um, I, I feel like people here aren't going to, I should just tell you all, but I don't want to. I'm fine think? with that. I, I can put a, be, a spoiler warning at the beginning of this 
and I can say specifically what we're going to spoil. Uh, and okay. that can give you the room to talk about it. Okay. Yeah. So, so spoiler alert for those of you that don't know, and we haven't even talked about really what my play is about. My play follows two ICE agents. Part one mostly follows one ICE agent, Johnny Montenegro, who has been suspended from duty after beating an immigrant to almost death. Spoiler alert, the immigrant does end up dying in Act 2. Johnny, when he's when he's uh, beating up this man, he hears a baby crying and goes into the house to look and he finds an immigrant girl, maybe 19, 20 years old, hiding in the closet. Big spoiler alert. Uh, well, he thinks that she's a vision of like Guadalupe or something. And he doesn't, and then he basically blacks out and doesn't remember what happens that night. And we, he's going on a journey, like trying to figure out what happened that night. And his best friend, Beto, who is the other main character, who actually is a bigger character when you get to part two and three, mm. he's trying to help him and such. But he sort of loses it. He realizes that he's part of the problem, that uh, he maybe is, maybe this is genocide that, that we're doing against uh, indigenous people. And part of the larger uh, genocide of indigenous people since colonization started. And this is the same thing. And he's part of it. So he sort of has that realization in Downward Spirals. That's part one. <laughs> part two, and that happens in 2017. Trump is, has just been elected and Trump's right. president. And, um, but the border hasn't gotten quite as out of control as it became later in Trump's presidency. So uh, part one ends with, spoiler alert, part one ends with him uh, realizing he's sort of a monster, but he puts his uniform back on and goes back to work anyway. And it's very, it's, it's a tragedy in that sense. Like mm -hmm. he, he doesn't do anything. He doesn't change. He goes back to work. That's how part one ends. Part two, <laughs> flash forward three years. We are following all the same characters. The difference is that we find out in part two that Johnny has killed himself between part one and two. And you sort of find that out in the middle of Act One. It's kind of shocking when you realize what's going on. You're you're kind of behind. Um, you see that Johnny's wife has a new boyfriend, and the wife of the immigrant who dies in Part One. She becomes kind of the main character of Part Two, and she's trying to um, help immigrants like find their families. And she's helping one person in particular try to find his husband and get HIV medicine into the uh, into the detention center where he's locked up. And that's the plot of Part. Two. Uh, meanwhile, that's all happening in, it starts on February 29th, 2020. And, and the play ends two weeks later, like when the shutdown happens. So it's literally the two weeks before the economic shutdown of 2020, which escalates everything really quickly. I had already sort of had it in my head that part two, I had seen a video of a little boy dying of the flu. Did, did you see that video? Yeah. Detention center. Yeah. If you remember that video, a little boy died because they, they didn't get a medicine and no one checked on him and uh, he died of the flu. And in, in researching that, I was very troubled by that. And I, I want, I thought that should be the, uh, something focused in part two. And um, in the research of that, I discovered that like five men had died of HIV because they didn't have their medicines. And there was all these other things um, going on in there. So what sort of allowed me to dig further is that the, pandemic was about to happen. So now it raises the stakes for Michelle, the character who was trying to get these medicines in because if she doesn't get this man, his HIV medicine, he could die of coronavirus if it hits and, and that sort of thing. And it raises all of the stakes for the play in a really like page turning way. Like it, part two just like zooms by. It's so edge of your seat. 
Yeah, and of course there's Aztec uh, uh, ghosts and ancestors and uh, the ghost of Johnny is on stage haunting his wife and it's uh, it's it, it's also ends tragically. <laughs> but I, I don't want part three to end tragically, so I need to really think about uh, this. Well, yeah, you've kind of led us into the last thing I wanted to talk about in this section of just asking questions about the, the daunting and incredibly complicated task of writing a trilogy, which is I was wondering, you know, how mapped out the uh the plot is and how how far along you are and it sounds like you're kind of keeping yourself open to the events that are happening in the real world and letting that influence uh the direction to some extent i was and some people wanted me to start writing part three like a year ago when i finished part two i'm like oh you gotta start part three and i i was i i couldn't i was like i can't these plays are literally about the things happening in our community right now sometimes you don't know what that is until long after you don't find out what really was happening in the detention centers till years later so it's hard and knowing that i've been lucky that i I have a really good friend who is a who is a lawyer for ice she works for ice and so she's fed me a lot of a lot of interesting information and such and i don't want to say her name because i don't want to get her in trouble (laughs) but um yeah so part three i sort i sort of know where I'm going. Something happens at the end of part two that is two big things happen at the end of part two. So at the end of part two, Michelle, whose husband dies in part one, she it's part two is basically like in her origin story of becoming this badass superhero activist. And by the end of part two, she she devises a plan to sneak these medicines into the detention center herself by getting arrested by ICE and finding a way into the detention center. And that's Mm. kind of how the play ends with her getting arrested. Uh, At the same time, Elida, who was the wife of the deceased Johnny Montenegro, she steals an immigrant baby which it might sound crazy, but um, it's all in there in the play from since part one, she wants a baby and she can't have a baby. And it's oh, yeah. all part two. She can't have a baby and she wants to adopt. And then she finds out that there's this baby that might be her ex-husband, her, her deceased husband's. Oh, right. Oh my God. And she, um, and so at, by the end of act two, she, she basically, she steals the baby and that's, and that's how part two ends. So now... <laughs> That's like this big unresolved thing for part three. So um, I do think I know where part three is going. I've just started writing a little bit. I have pages and pages and pages and pages of notes on part three, but nothing for sure. I have, I've written a few like monologues. I've written um, a few things like that to like, see if I can find a way in. I do think I know, I do think I have a, a, um, a sort of, um, outline of events at least that happened in reality which is i think the play will start with trump's visit to mccallan after he lost the election to the border wall i think that's how the play will start and i think it at least act two of the play will be the the texas freeze and everyone's stuck together and with that baby that's been stolen and um oh wow i don't know i don't necessarily know what will happen a lot of this is um i know it 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 maybe sounds foo-foo, but I don't always, I feel like, because this isn't something that actually happened to me, when I'm writing stuff that happened to me, like actually this, right now I'm writing two pilots and they're based on my own life. So I like whipped them out like in a week because I know everything that happened. But for these plays, I feel like these are characters I don't 
know like I, every everything about them to me is just as mysterious as it would be to the audience and I'm and that sometimes when I discover what they would do and I'm trying to figure out what they want I I really have a, a trying to written these plays from like, what does this character want and what do they do to get what they want? Mm -hmm. And that sort of desperation is what led me to the ending of, of part two with Elida stealing these babies. And we, these babies, there's still like a thousand babies that haven't been reunited with parents. Like it's, right. no one knows where they are. So that was something I knew I wanted to be in the play too. Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I, how desperate is Ellie? That was a question I had to ask. Would she actually do something like that? What what will these characters do? Like, what depths mm -hmm. will they go to? I'm just a shock sometimes when I discover them. I'm like, oh, no. And, and I fight with it. I, I had a really hard time writing parts because I kept saying, no, there's no way. No, she, she wouldn't steal a baby. She can't steal a baby. No way. She wouldn't take that baby. Well, she's yeah. been radicalized, right? I mean, the events <laughs> of part one have have, like, radicalized her. In, in and her what husband's she's willing suicide. To yeah. And um, a lot of things, yeah, have radicalized several of these characters, I think. And yeah, and she's haunted by the ghost of her husband throughout the play. So that's, um, I think that's, that's also driving her. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> you mentioned this friend who is a, a lawyer for ICE. And of course, I, I'm sure a lot of pouring over news articles was part of the research. Uh, beyond that, uh, any research that was helpful in informing your writing process? Uh, yeah, I talked to a few, um, a few, not ICE agents, but Border Patrol agents here. And my parents live in a small town called Falfulias, Texas, uh, which is where the checkpoint is when you're passing when you, you know those checkpoints in South Texas on the highways, they're, they're looking for drugs, they're looking for immigrants and such. So I did talk to a few Border Patrol agents, different from ICE, but did talk to Border Patrol agents as well as um, my dad's a Catholic deacon. And um, they know people that are undocumented immigrants and such. So my dad did set up some interviews for me with undocumented immigrants and um, as well as like actually working in restaurants in New York you know, tons of undocumented immigrants. <laughs> and I, I did, I worked at a restaurant in New York with lots of un undocumented immigrants. Um, but other than that, and my friend that works for ICE, um, oh, I was volunteering at the um, Catholic Charities, um, which is a big place where part two, to, a lot of action takes place in part two. Uh, I volunteered in, in McAllen at the, the Catholic Charities um, Refugee Respite Center. So some of that was like firsthand stuff that's in the play in part two, at least. Asking uh, a question about a play as big as this one is going to be a challenge. But if you had to pick one or a couple of moments in this play that you're particularly fond of, maybe because you just like them, maybe because they were, they were very hard to find, maybe because they have some personal significance to you, what would you say are some of the moments that come to mind as particularly favorites for you? Well, in part one, which is what's going to be at Landy Theater... <laughs> The opening scene, which started as a one act, I mean, very little of those first 10 pages have changed since I wrote it as a one act. Uh, so those first 10 pages where um, it's uh, Johnny Montenegro is being interviewed by a human resource investigator, they call him OPR, about an incident that happened. And he's telling, he's speaking sort of in this poetic theater monologue that's uh, very common in, in Latinx theater tradition. And he's speaking to the audience like in poem, but talking to her in, in, 
in a different language and in a very brief, you know, um, angry sort of uh, vocabulary. And then it's also at the same time flash flashbacks to the night of the incident. And um, I think that I, I, I'm really proud of that first little section. And maybe if I hadn't been so proud of it, I wouldn't have kept writing it. But I think that first introduction into this world, as chaotic as it is, I think it gives you a lot of rules of the world. It's going to be fantastical. There's going to be visions. It's going to be in and out of time. You you may not be hearing the truth. You know, right at the beginning, Johnny lies to uh, he lies to some of the characters and then turns to the audience and tells the truth. And then you're meant to sort of question whether he's ever, I don't know if he's ever going to tell the truth even to the audience. Um, so that's one of my favorite sections. And that's the first 10 minutes of the play. <laughs> and then another one is that is that dinner party scene where where it's like a 20 minute scene in part one, where these two couples these two ICE agents and their wives are having dinner and arguing about their sort of identity, what, what they call themselves, which is, is a little bit of that survived from like 2013 or 2014 when I, when I wrote that, that's in there still. And that, that survived a little bit. So I, I really love that moment because people always come up to me after a reading uh, or presentation and, and specifically talk to me about that moment. And, oh my gosh, I felt so seen and you articulated what I'd been thinking or whatever for years. So I love that moment as well in part one. And there's a cool moment in, in act two of part one where um, we hear like sounds of ventilators and stuff in a hospital and it's sort of done. The sounds are coming from the ensemble kind of watching on stage and that's something we discovered in workshop in San Diego, the really fabulous director. It was directed by um, Juliana Kleist Mendez in San Diego. And she sort of had this idea, like what if the soundscape was made by this cast? It is an ensemble cast, eight actors, and they play lots of different parts. Um, for instance, like in part one, the character of Delia in part two, she plays three other characters and vice versa. And Johnny, even though he's the main character of part one, he plays like four characters in part two. So it really, as it changes focus, they play, it's an ensemble of eight and they play all these different characters. So it's, I just think it's really cool. And, and knowing that and playing with that is allowing me to think of part three different. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at part three and I've started writing and I'm wondering like, would they break the fourth wall? Are they just actors playing this role? Should I go there? Should what should should like what what is the extent of this? And when their ancestors show up, we know that they're the same actors. So should I address that to the audience? These are the thoughts I'm having right now as I'm thinking of part three in this um, and where it's it's got to spiral to something magnificent in part three. Otherwise, why am I doing it? So uh, that's kind of crippling too. I don't want to let it. Cripple. <laughs> Yeah. So in part one, those are the ones. I, I, I guess we probably shouldn't talk about part two since um, that's not being presented at landing. <laughs> one of my, well, a lot of my favorite parts that I, when I think back on it are moments when, you know, kind of the world inside Johnny's head and the world outside Johnny's head start to sort of layer on top of each other in this very musical way, this very sort of mm. fugue-like way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's this kind of brilliant controlled chaos that happens and that oh, kind of you. it led me to this question of you know thinking back on your musical background and you have written musicals before did your sense of musicality consciously influence how you were writing this play 
Not at all. <laughs> I mean, maybe in the sense that I can hear, like as I'm as I'm reading, rereading the scenes to myself to edit them, I hear music in my head, like like a score underneath it, like that helps me think of tone. But no, I wasn't thinking of that musically at all. I was thinking of that, and that's speci- specifically those scenes. I was thinking that I just wanted to show how unsteady Johnny was and I wanted to layer all these things on top of each other. And that was um, trial and error. I probably did like that specific part uh, Mm. that those parts you're referring to. Uh, Thank you for saying they're genius, but that was probably, those are the parts I probably rewrote the most. Probably like 30 rewrites on that section versus two small rewrites on the dinner party scene. You know, so I think just making them really precise and and over and, and, you know, making sure that the levels make sense to the audience and on stage and and that they interact in some way and they play off each other and they lead was was uh, one of the hardest things, I think. So here's my weird question that. I warned you when when I sent the email of questions in advance, we can cut this if it ends up going nowhere. But if Aztec Pirates is a genre of music, or if it's several genres of music, I don't know, what kind of music do you equate it to, relate it to? No, it would be, you know, something like this doesn't exist. Um, it's, that's an interesting question. I'm actually glad you asked that. Because something like this doesn't exist. We don't have... Because Aztec Pirates is so serious... And um, I really think like if it were a movie, it would be like you would hear like strings and some like like super serious music, Philip Glass, you know, like that kind of thing to set the, this really serious, eerie, suspenseful tone mm-hmm. if it were a film. And also if it were staged on Broadway or something. But then that has to be interspersed with the music of South Texas and Tejano and uh, Mariachi. And that doesn't exist yet. Because there are, because me and a couple of my friends have been working on stuff like that. Um, look up, your audience should should know this composer. Look up Jaime Lozano. He's a, a good friend and collaborator of mine. We've been working together for several years. He's writing this really cool mariachi versions of Broadway songs and his wife sings them. And, and he just recorded an album. I've written a few songs with him. Um, we just wrote a song actually about crossing the river just to go shopping we wrote a song about that and uh, it's on his latest album, which is called songs from an immigrant available everywhere. And we got the Hano superstar um, Bobby Pulido to record it. Um, So it's just, uh, I think, and and I'm also, I'm writing a musical right now with another collaborator, collaborator of mine, Noemi de la Puente, which is a mariachi musical. And it's not maybe what people would think. There's been a few quote unquote mariachi musicals in Mexico where they take old mariachi songs and just throw them into like a random plot, you know? Sure. Like Mamma uh, Mia, but mariachi. Right. Sure. Uh, which is totally valid. And actually Jaime has direct music directed some of those in Mexico and stuff. But um, what me and Noemi are working on is closer to like what Les Miserables, what Claude Michael Schoenberg wanted to do with Les Miserables and Miss Saigon, which was sort of combine this French opera sound that he loved with what was happening on Broadway contemporarily at that time. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to sort of forge this um, mariachi and Tex-Mex into a Broadway pop operatic sound. And uh, so we're working on something called Promesa and we haven't worked on it in in like 10 months. So this is a note to self to get back to work on it. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. So that is an interesting question because it doesn't, I think it doesn't exist. And I think that some of these 
these styles of music belong just as much on the stage as as they do in the bars where we you know eat nachos and such. <laughs> in an ideal world, what does a future production of this play look like? Is it just this play? Do you put the whole trilogy together into a, a sort of Angels in America all day thing? When you when you envision the the finished product, what are some of the things you see? Well, yes, ideally that would be lovely. It's very rare. It's very rarely done. And so I guess me thinking like, okay, I guess I don't want this play to ever be done. Let me write a third part and then it'll really never be done. <laughs> I have thought about this because of that. There's a few ways it can go. I do think that part one plays by itself just fine. And without part two and three, I think that's very possible. Ideally, I would love a situation where we're performing it as a trilogy. Uh, it's it's rarely done, but it is done. But it's probably been like 15 years since it's happened on, on Broadway, a trilogy mm. where they play all three of them in rep. But yeah, ideally, I would, I would they do that with, with two-part plays a lot on Broadway, and I go to them. I love it. One of my favorite things is to go to an all-day-long play. Uh, the Inheritance... You know, getting there at 1 p.m. with some with some friends and each part has three acts. I mean, like, I love that shit. I, can I cuss? I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> I love that shit. Um, and I did it. I did it a few times in the last few years. I did it with The Inheritance. I did it uh, with The Revival of Angels in America. I think it's fun. I think you, you get to the theater and then you get a you get a break and you go get coffee and then you get a longer break and, and uh, you can go get a slice of pizza. And then you get a dinner break for two and a half, three hours and you and your friends all go have a really nice dinner and have martinis, et cetera. And then you go back and you see the rest of the play. I, I just, yeah, I love that. There's something so communal about that. You're never going to forget that theater experience. I love that. And I loved, I loved doing it with The Inheritance. Specifically, I did it twice with the inheritance so i'm all about that i don't know that everyone was now that changes things though because you can't do it with three parts you can't go to the theater all day long for three plays you can do two a lot of stamina (laughs) yeah so here's what i'm thinking because i think part one plays so well by itself this would be my ideal my ideal broadway run okay or, or you know what? Or off-Broadway, I'd be happy at the Atlantic or the Public or Second Stage if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Tuesday night, part one. Wednesday morning, part one. Uh, Wednesday night, part two. So you have two chances to see part one. And then if you want to see part two, you can go Wednesday night. Mm-hmm. Cool? Thursday, part one still, I think. Friday night... Part one still, I think. So we're playing four part ones a week. It's actually going to be five because then Saturday matinee, part one. Saturday evening, part two. Sunday matinee, part three. So we only play part three Uh once a week is my ideal. And then the reason, the reason being that I just don't think everyone will get, like, I don't think everyone will make the (laughs) commitment to see all three parts. And I think seeing part one, giving people five chances to see part one, two chances to see part two Mm -hmm. and one chance to see part three. And maybe if the demand actually is 
if there is a demand for this show, God, God willing, <laughs> somehow. Uh, because let's face it, there's not a lot of demand for Mexican-American theater or Ch- Chicano theater, Latinx theater in general. There's very few Broadway, Latinx, anything. Very, f- very few anything on TV. Uh, the chances are, are really small, realis- realistically, I think, for this play anywhere. I hate to say that because I, I, I think that universally people would enjoy this play. I think you enjoy anything as long as you know what the character wants. That's, that's the secret they teach you, you know, in playwriting school. You can connect with any character so long as the character tells the audience what they want and will root for you. And uh, I mean, I'm not a polygamist, but I love watching Big Love. I'm not, I'm not in the mafia, but I loved The Sopranos. I don't think it necessarily matters. Like, I think people will enjoy any character. But, so that, that's my plan. <laughs> Maybe if it, if it becomes a hit, and uh, then we'll start adding more performances of two and three as the run continues. Yeah, this is definitely kind of the kind of thing you have to figure out as you go, because there, as you said, there is no roadmap. There isn't a, a successful uh, play trilogy you can compare this to and say, well, here's how they did it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's been two, 2008, I think was the last like actual trilogy on Broadway. Um, what's the name of that play? Gosh, I'm having so many brain farts today. The Norman play, is it The Norman Conquest? Yeah, The Norman Conquest and also Shipwreck, um, the Coast of Utopia. Tom Stoppard was a trilogy. Oh, so yeah. those are the last. Those are the last two I can think of, and both of those were like twelve years ago ish. The Norman Conquest literally just did one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. But the Norman Quan Conquest you can watch out of order, and it doesn't matter what order you watch them in. You know, you find it, they're surprising in each in each way. The Coast of Utopia, though, I need to go back and look at at uh, what they did when they performed that. Because it's been a while. The, the interesting thing is all my friends are writing trilogies. <laughs> so there's like eight of us in uh, my writing group that all have Latinx trilogies we're working on. And I hope there's theater companies out there that will produce them. Yeah, I hope whatever all of you are picking up in the zeitgeist that's compelling you to do this is also compelling people on the production end to do it. Because there's there's clearly something out there, something in the air that's... Uh, energizing galvanizing the writing of of these big fantastic plays yeah interesting right i mean if anything i should write the pilot version and maybe do it at tv Mm. (laughs) maybe i'll get picked up for tv (laughs) that's next that's probably next (laughs) i've got too much to do before then but let me finish part three first is there anything you particularly wanted to hit on that we haven't hit on so far we haven't talked about the title oh everyone asks me about the title nonstop. um Aztec Pirates is a nod to, or a reference to the idea of having entire cultures of indigenous or mixed indigenous Latinx Hispanic people not know their past and sort of just take one because you can. Because because when you're looking for an identity, it's nice to be able to find one. So the whole like Rasquache movement uh, and celebrating all things Rasquache and, and Aztec that happened in Mexico in the 20th century and, and continues to happen. You know, we everyone still all over San Antonio, all of those uh, Mexican decorations and the sugar skulls and all of those things that have been sort of salvaged from different indigenous tribes that we don't even you know know about anymore. And which make Mexican culture. It's an it's a reference to that, and it's a reference to an idea of like pirating 
this identity, pirating this Aztec identity or pirating any identity uh, as a Latinx person with mixed indigenous roots. Uh, So that's what that is in reference to. And then the insignificance of life on Mars is a reference to the Martian Chronicles, Ray Bradbury, and the idea that it doesn't matter if there's life on Mars because we would we would colonize them and we would kill them all and we would genocide them into nothing. And the sort of, so that's, that's colonialism. That's a reference to colonialism. You know, the first time I read it, the way it struck me was like, it was close in time to a rover being on Mars and the headlines being on that. And a a certain feeling of, of frustration with like, you really care. You're really invested in what's up there. Mm. Look what's happening here. That's good. Yeah. That's another way to look at it. Yeah. SpaceX billions of dollars just exploding and, and we can't feed the poor people in San Antonio, the lines on the news. It's like, I can't believe those long lines down the highway, mm-hmm. people trying to get food. Crazy. Well, now that people are equipped to fully understand the weight and resonance of the title, I'll, I'll say it one more time. Aztec Pirates and the Insignificance of Life on Mars by David Davila. David, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your time and your thoughts. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, You know, I love just to talk about myself. Music for today's episode was composed by Juan Sebastian Cruz. The Landing Theatre New Works podcast is a production of the Landing Theatre Company under artistic director David Rainey. For more information, check out landingtheatre.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.